Thank you, Autumn. How great is our God? Can be a question mark or an exclamation point. On that, I'd say it's an exclamation point. Let's praise the Lord. Well, I, I want to welcome everyone again to our Adoptive Ministry Fair, and uh, it's our first Adoptive Ministry Fair, and unless the rapture hap- happens suddenly, I, I don't expect it to be our last. Um, we have these ministries here. Certainly, they're not the only ministries that we have at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. They're vital at this time, um, so we are profiling them. But there are many ministries that we do, uh, all of them very significant and very important, In fact, in future uh, ministry fairs, I expect that we'll be profiling different ones, new ones, and we'll bring those to you in more detail. But these six today are crucial to how we are functioning at this time and and our need of support. Now, auxiliary ministries to the church are are very important. Um, There are some people that that really don't feel that they are. Um, They think that churches just do too much. Some question whether we need a functioning nursery, for instance. There's nowhere in the Bible that talks about a nursery. It's a fair question. We, uh, must we have a wanna? Do we have to have all these children's programs? What about the cost of our primary facility? Is that necessary? There are movements that say we should just divide up into groups of 10 people and go to homes and avoid the cost of a primary facility. Now, they're not dumb questions. They deserve answers. In fact, we always need to be asking ourselves, what are we doing? What are we doing, and why are we doing it? Um, Why are we even here? When we assess assess the functions and ministries of a local church and and narrow everything down to explain why Port St. Lucie Bible Church exists, The fact is it comes down to one purpose. There's one reason we're here. That's to proclaim a message. It's a message that must be proclaimed and it must be proclaimed broadly. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the news that he died for our sins, that we are sinners separated from God, and he stood in the gap and took the punishment that we deserved. He had victory over the grave. That must be proclaimed So everything that we do ought to facilitate that proclamation. doesn't matter whether it's near or far, to rich or old, to poor. We have to proclaim broadly. We proclaim repeatedly. So the gospel is our one thing. That without that message, really, there's no reason to be here. Liberals, in an attempt to neuter the local church, have have done so in certain segments by removing the message altogether, the gospel message. They say, we don't need that. And they've recreated the church into a social group. Some church denominations now champion instead world hunger. A good need, something that needs to be done. Others champion civil rights. Some environmentalism. In fact, there are even some that are champion are champions now of gay marriage, believe it or not. So this approach of marginalizing Christ while promoting other needs that are felt needs is known as the social gospel. The social gospel is a form of false gospel that we're warned about in Scripture that takes the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth 
of the gospel and sets it on the sideline while another agenda is promoted. Many that we see in the media today want to promote the social gospel in the church. It can be used as a vessel because it reaches so many people, the pulpits across America. If that can be harnessed, it can be an effective means of promoting a social agenda. Now that might not sound like a horrible thing on all fronts. Who doesn't want to feed poor people? We do. But the problem is the attempt to promote unity by eliminating any talk about what sin is, about what man's accountability towards God is. They want to eliminate the cross from discussion. So they've removed the message. They've removed that one thing that must go forth. In doing so, a few people might be fed. But nobody gets saved. In contrast to that, biblical Christianity has always been about the message. You can't save people without preaching the gospel. Without preaching repentance and salvation. So just let me provide one example from Jesus Christ himself. Early along in his earthly ministry, he was becoming very popular. You know, there were massive crowds that were following him early on. He was healing a lot of sick people. He was feeding multitudes. He was even liberating some from demon possession. Those are good things. Very good things. And on one occasion, a multitude of sick people had gathered. And the Gospel of Mark records this in chapter 1. And it says, verse 32, When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to Jesus all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Early in the morning, the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house. He went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon Peter and his companions searched for Jesus. They found him and they said to him, Everybody is looking for you. Of course there were. There's a lot of healings going on. But Jesus said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. For this is what I came for. Now, of course, Jesus took a lot of pleasure in healing people. He took a lot of pleasure in relieving the hurting people. He loved to feed people. He loved to care for people and heal people. But Christ didn't come to completely eliminate poverty completely eliminate sickness or even remove social inequality if he did he failed but that isn't why he came he came with a message it was the message of faith in God and the repentance from sins that same chapter that I just read from you Mark chapter 1 it tells us of the content of Christ's message 
Jesus himself said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For both Jesus and those who followed him, the message of the gospel is of paramount importance. Nothing else can usurp it. Nothing else can compare. The fact is that Jesus left behind a whole lot of sick people when he died on that cross. A whole lot of sick people. So in brief, we know from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Christ's ultimate mission was the cross. That's why he came. But his three-year ministry consisted of proclaiming a message and doing so broadly. And of course, the peripheral activity that went on, the healings, meeting the needs of the poor, all of these were proofs of his identity. They testified to who he was. But the Bible is always foremost about proclaiming a message. We discovered last week when we talked about the prophets and what they came for. You know, they didn't come to predict the future. That wasn't their mission. Their mission was to proclaim God's message. Predicting the future wasn't evidence to who they were and evidence to their authenticity. So let's look and see if the preeminence of the proclamation remains now during the church age. And you can return to our primary text there in Acts chapter 5. Here, as we said earlier, the church is experiencing rapid growth. Uh, On the day of Pentecost, you know, 3,000 souls were added. Shortly thereafter, we read in in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, that Peter preached his second message, and it said that 5,000 men believed. And we find that church growth is always a result of a brave preaching, unashamed proclamation of Christ. And at this time, the church is growing exponentially. The Spirit's even moved thousands of people to share their goods with one another. They've combined ownership of their goods. So what we have here, in reality, is the first mega church. There's thousands and thousands of people probably as high as 15,000 people through this time if you uh, include women and children. And the apostles begin to experience a situation that threatens to derail them from their mission. We find this in chapter 5. The apostles are preaching boldly, so boldly in fact, now they're starting to experience physical persecution. But the physical persecution wasn't the danger to their situation. It wasn't what they had to deal with. Look at Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 38. We know of this highly respected Pharisee named Gamaliel. He's just advised the Jewish council to not kill the apostles for their preaching. In verse 38, he says, So in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is an action of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So Gamaliel says, don't kill them. That's very wise counsel. They just executed Jesus not long before that, and that's what began all their problems, wasn't it? He said, don't augment this, don't cause more trouble, just see what happens, see if it pans out. Because if it's not of God, it's going to fail. 
And in verse 40 it says, they took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, the apostles did, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer in the name of Christ. So the flogging did not deter them from preaching their message. In fact, that persecution actually rejuvenated them. How would that be possible? How could being flogged rejuvenate you? Well, imagine now that you were alive at this time. You were with this group. And your, your leader, your beloved leader, who you were convinced was the Son of God, had just been taken, tried, and convicted of crimes that he hadn't committed. And then they beat him, they flog him, they scourge him, they nail him to a cross. Three days later, he rose from the grave. What do you naturally start to do? You start to preach that he's resurrected, right? Right? That's what they were doing. That's what got them in trouble. And the Pharisees were commanding these apostles to stop. So they ended up flogging them. What would that indicate to you in this situation if you were there? If you had been flogged, if you had been beaten, it validates that you belong to Jesus Christ. It authenticates that you are a legitimate follower of Christ. And without further inquiry at all, we can pretty well assume that they were recalling the words that Jesus had said to them as he is preparing them, the apostles, for their last mission, or for their mission at the Last Supper. It was a night which Jesus was going to be betrayed and arrested. And in fact, by the time he makes his following statement, he had already washed their feet. The hour was drawing near, and he assured them in John chapter 15, listen to this. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So these disciples realize that if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you will at some level suffer loss and ridicule and rejection by the world. So they rejoice in suffering for his name. That didn't deter them from proclaiming their message at all. It reaffirmed them. And what was the result in verse 42? It says that every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. But then we come to the beginning of chapter 6. And then the potential of this distraction arises. Um, You know, the early church Christians had pooled their resources they probably were convinced that Jesus was coming back very quickly, though he did not state that he was coming back quickly. But they pooled their resources, and there was need for food to be distributed to people, especially those who were helpless. In this situation, widows. 
And in verse 1 of chapter 6 it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now Jewish widows who were Hellenistic or or Greek-speaking, they would be visiting from out of town. They had been there for the day of Pentecost, for for the celebration, for the feast. And now, as they had come into the church, these out-of-towners were being overlooked in the food distribution. They weren't getting their ration. And that isn't hard to explain, really. When you think of it now, the church had thousands of people. The widows probably at least numbered in many dozens. Many dozens, perhaps more. And it became impossible for the twelve, the twelve apostles, impossible for them to identify each one of these widows and to meet their needs. At the same time, at the very same time, getting food to orphans and widows, it's a very significant priority. You have to do that. That is true religion, according to James, is to meet the needs of orphans and widows. So they are concerned about this, and they could have dropped everything. The apostles could have dropped everything. Uh, They could have taken it upon themselves, the twelve apostles, to identify each widow identify them by name, personally visit each one at each time that they needed something, and personally hand to them the food ration that they required. It could have been an early form of apostolic meals on wheels. They could have each had a cart. They could have gone around with money and with food and and could have handed it individually to each widow. They could have made sure everyone was fed. And you know what? That wouldn't have been an evil thing. There would have been nothing evil about that. But what problem would that have created? If they would have done that, what would they be distracted from? Their work of proclaiming the message. The message was the only thing that saved souls. So the apostles were determined. They're determined that the ministry to widows was vital. It needs to happen, but uh, it also can't distract from proclaiming Christ. So they did. They decided to adopt what Moses did. And they, dedica- they devoted the work, they delegated the work to competent individuals. Now look in verse 2. <coughs> so the twelve, that means the twelve apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of the task. There's a few things to note in this passage. First off, the apostles regarded serving of tables as a very important ministry. Don't misread this. It wasn't that it wasn't significant. It's that they had a different job to do. It was so significant that they said, we need to have seven men. They can't just be any men. They need to be honest men. They need to be men of repute. They need to be men full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, disciplined, diligent, to make sure the task gets done. 
This was a very important ministry as the apostles saw it. But secondly, we see that whatever ministry a local church determines it must embark on, in this case, feeding widows, they determined it must not intrude on or distract from the primary mission of the church, which is to proclaim the gospel message broadly. So in their opinion, the apostles said, the preaching, the evangelism, the proclamation, the reaching the unsaved cannot be sidestepped, it cannot be set aside, it can't take a hind seat. Third is, that though the people identified these seven men, they knew who was in good repute, they knew who they trusted, it was still the church leadership who put the man in charge. It was the apostles who assigned them to the task. They took the ministry to the widows, and it remained under the authority of the local church. That's why it says later that the men, the apostles, laid hands on them in the next verses. They're delegating to them. This wasn't a separate ministry. These seven men weren't given a bunch of autonomy to decide what they were going to do. They were part of the local church. The apostles put these men in charge of a very important ministry task. And what did the apostles set their mind to do? Verse 4, it says, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They've just multiplied ministries. Now they have many things going on, multiple things going on, all important to the kingdom of God. And then what do we find is the wise result of this this delegation of authority? In verse 5 it says, The statement found approval of the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. And what happened to the... because of the fact that the apostles were willing to delegate and allow other people to do ministry, when they put trustworthy servants in positions to serve, the text says that the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith so they experienced the best of both worlds they multiplied ministries the widows were fed the word kept on spreading remained their primary mission the willingness of faithful servants to come in and perform auxiliary important ministries permitted the apostles to continue to focus on what God had called them to do prayer and proclamation. So in a sense, in a sense, these men who came in and took on these important ministries, by doing so, they facilitated the proclamation of the word. By taking this responsibility, being delegated by the apostles, they freed up others to do other ministries, to proclaim the word, and in effect, they're the reason that the preaching of the gospel went 
on unhindered because of the people who are willing to serve in taking the food to the widows. <coughs> Excuse me. I talked a, a couple weeks ago, I spoke briefly about the size of the average local church in America. I told you we were going to come back to that a little bit. And uh, there are varying statistics. You can, depends upon what source you go to, and it depends upon whether they're measuring uh, just non-Catholic ministries or if they're doing Orthodox or if it's all Protestant. I know we've never received a survey here, so I can't say we're included with these numbers. But in general, the numbers typically show the size of an average congregation in America. Do you know what the typical size is of a church in America? 51%, according to one study, 51% are less than 75. Over half are less than 75 people. Now, that doesn't mean the average is 75. It means that over half are less than 75. Some are 30, some are 15, some are 40, some are 75. So half of them are 75 or less. And in fact, uh, I saw one study by Barna Group that as they surveyed, over 60% are less than 100 people. And that was a separate survey, so it kind of coordinates the, uh, or compares, brings into alignment those same numbers. And uh, there's a reason for this. There is, is a reason, especially when you go into denominationalism, excuse me. There is only so much that one man can do. There is only so much that one individual or a couple individuals can do. I know growing up, the view that we had of the pastor was he was the guy who did ministry. If he was the one uh, to be called all the time, he was called to do the hospital visitations which is a good thing, just like feeding the widows. He was called to preach on Sundays. He was called to mow the lawn. He was called to fix the leak in the roof. This is very common, much more common than, than we might realize in our group. The pastor's called on everything. So there's only a certain number of people that can be ministered to by one man. And when you read through pastoral books, and I know Gerald's come across stats like this or two, one man, if he's going to go all in, can handle about 50 to 75 people. That's about it. By that, you can't keep track of people. You can't know where they are. You can't uh, be aware of every situation that's going on, every death, every sickness, unless you have more people involved with the work of ministry. Um, growing churches, ones that excel beyond that, beyond the 200, uh, especially the 200 level, they have a lot of people involved with ministry. You cannot grow without multiple people involved with ministry, and I think we've all experienced that, and we know that. In fact, one survey, and, and uh, I'll just state this and move on, to show the effectiveness of when you share the burden, as the apostles did with others, the top 4%, according to one survey of churches in America in size, the top 4% are ministering to more people, number-wise, meeting needs, visiting them, the top 4% are reaching more people than the bottom 51% combined because they're sharing the burden of ministry. So here this all represents the reason that we have behind us the Adoptive Ministry Fair. 
the opportunities to share the workload. Our church is very good at already doing this. I know often when someone falls ill, I've usually got a phone call from another person who's keeping tabs on them. Lori Albright, I know, is, is on the phone regularly saying, did you know that such and such is in the hospital? She's doing ministry. She's visiting ministry. And, uh, of course, she's missing today because she had a broken leg, but she's doing much, much better. Last night I talked to her, and she's uh, ready to be back soon, healing very well. And when you have these people that are involved with others' lives, ministry multiplies. When we are serving one another, a lot more can be done in the name of Christ. So it helps to facilitate the spread of the word. There's other things that we need. You need to have a building. Uh, Even at the time of the apostles, they were utilizing both the temple grounds and going house to house to do the teaching. We find in both in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 5, it's mentioned that the apostles used the portico of Solomon. Now that was a shaded area on the temple grounds off to the side of the temple. In fact, Jesus himself used this for some of his teaching. So the apostles were using that structure to get people out of the weather, to get people out of the sun. They used those areas on the temple grounds. And of course, there were people who had homes that had large upper rooms. We know Jesus used uh, a large upper room for the Last Supper where he gathered the disciples together to speak to them. And so the apostles were going around teaching besides going house to house with people who had the facilities to do it. So a facility is necessary. You have to have a facility. Now don't get me wrong, the building isn't the church. We know better than that. The, the people are the church. But the facility facilitates the essential functions of the church in preaching, in teaching, in serving, and in equipping. You have to have a building. And the point needs to be made as well that the facility must remain and stay in harmony with the expectations of the culture around you. It has to remain in the expectations of the people um, who will visit. Our church has served us very well. The building has served very well. There's a time now we'd like to do some updates. But the, the fact is, if we lived in a certain location in Africa, we could get away with a dirt floor. You can't do that here. The culture doesn't accept it. We could have wood benches if we were in other locations. The culture doesn't accept it. Similar to any local restaurant that you might run into, uh, people avoid turning into a location that they don't find well kept. So our facilities served us well. We're looking to do some updating. That will be part of what you will find Rita over at this table for cleaning for painting, for renovating. There will be lots of opportunities there. Um, another good point is, we've got plenty of facility here. We don't need more facility. If, if we decided to go to two services, if God were to bless that, uh, we could minister to four to 500 people here easy. We don't have to worry about any building campaign. We just have to take care of what we've got. So we're really blessed in that regard. Um, I've also heard it said that, you know, if people won't return to a church because it isn't updated or isn't kept, you know, those people just must not be very spiritual. Gerald and I have talked. 
about this. What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? Along with Nathan. The people that were wanting to come in, the people that we're wanting to reach and that we talk to in the parks, they're not necessarily very spiritual people. We would love for them to feel comfortable when they come in, and if we have to do that by doing some updating, we're obliged to do so. We will meet what the cultural expectations are. So it's a very vital ministry. The building and grounds, especially with Tim here, you'll see on the right, who keeps the grass cut so your shoes aren't all wet in the summer when we walk in. He keeps uh, a lot of things up to date. These are very vital ministries, much like the apostles that had other servants doing the other work. This church couldn't go on without people doing these vital ministries. The nursery, that's also going to be renovated. Um, Do we need a nursery? Well, not every parent wants their child in a nursery. I understand that. When I was growing up, my mom tells me anyhow, she just laid me in the pew next to her on Sunday. That's what they did. There's nothing wrong with that. And if people want to keep their child in the service, they're welcome to do that. But in this age and in this era, there are a lot of people that when they come to church, they want to worship. They want to learn God's word. When they visit, they would like a clean, comfortable nursery. So Mary is in the back at that table. If you have desires to be part of painting or staffing or helping with the nursery, uh, your service there is very much appreciated. (coughs) Another one of our outreaches, which is very important, is our children's outreach. Our neighborhood's children, neighborhood children's outreach as well. This does not include all the work that goes on with Sunday school, which is also very important. But today we're representing our outreach to the community. Um, it's expressed in our congregation through uh, Wild Water Wednesdays, which reaches out to the local community, the uh, Awana, as well as Vacation Bible School, as you heard about earlier from Pastor Weiler. We run one of the best vacation Bible schools in the city, if not the best. Uh, It's very exciting. The gospel is clearly preached. I know Gerald and Nathan and myself are always reevaluating these. Wild Water Wednesday was an experiment last year that that was great. Really had a great turnout for that. Um, Scripture says, do not hinder the little children from coming to me. We don't hinder them. We help them. This year we're going to send out, very broadly now, 2,500 mailers to the local uh, homes here. Our street sign ministry is going to hold a a vacation Bible school sign that reaches thousands of parents and commuters as they go by each Wednesday. We're we're estimating roughly 5,000 people pass by our signs in an hour and a half each Wednesday. So vacation Bible school is going to be promoted uh, to motorists, and these use youth events, evangelistic games, to win young people. So you can be part of these ministries that are extended to every home in our community that we preach broadly. There's no charge for these events. The kids are welcome to come in. They don't have to have any special requirement. They get to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. We have hundreds of them come in. Being part of that last year is just one of the most exciting things that I've taken part in is Vacation Bible School. You can see the photo on the back wall over there of all the kids that were reached with the gospel. The other part is it makes it very uh, uh, alluring, I'd say, is it's only one week a year. One week of hitting it hard, having fun with the kids, 
You're wore out by the end of the week. But it is a way to reach a whole lot of people with a little effort. Same with Wild Water Wednesdays. That is, this year going to be three Wednesdays leading up to VBS. Not a huge commitment. They're very effective, efficient ministries of reaching our neighborhood youth with a minimal investment of your time. Awana begins in the fall. You can visit Nathan there at that table. A couple hours a week from fall into early spring. All of these directed to getting our kids exposed to the gospel. Finally, evangelism and outreach. Here we have this table here, and and I'll be at that table along with Curtis will stand there with me and and answer any questions you might have about street signs. Uh, In evangelism and outreach, we pretty much just go everywhere and hit everybody up with the gospel. Uh, We had uh, a great response to our evangelism training that just wrapped up. If you missed that, you haven't missed out, come and see us. We can team you up with someone that will go out with you to parks. We'll continue to do that on a routine basis. Um, And we can help train you and get over your fear of approaching strangers. It's much easier than than we imagine. Uh, Wednesday evenings at 5, we have the street sign ministry. Let me know if you have interest in learning about that. This summer we're going to, as you can look in your bulletin and see some of these, this summer... Wednesdays at 6.45, we're going to be meeting here early and we're going to be going out door to door. We're going to be hanging door hangers. We're going to be talking to people in the parks. There's going to be lots of opportunity to talk to people about Christ. There will be ways to do it passively too if you just want to hang door hangers and not knock on the door and just go hit a city block. We'll help you out with that. Um, Rita and I are also going to try and get some video testimony started. If you have interest in that, come and see us. What this might consist of is now that we're such a a techie um, generation that has social media is that we can video you talking about your relationship with Christ. We can edit that. We can put a very nice representation of your faith with Christ and you can put it on your Google account. You can put it on Facebook and you can tell everybody what Christ has done for you. So if you're interested in that, don't be shy. In fact, we have something for everyone. You can be shy and passive. You can be bold and aggressive, or you can just be passive-aggressive. <laughs> we pretty much have something for everyone here today, and there's more where that came from. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now, celebrate communion. We're going to be here uh, today for, for as long as we need to be here. If you have questions... We will stay as long as necessary. We'll even skip lunch to talk to you. (coughs) Communion is a memorial where we together commemorate Christ's death, his sacrifice on our behalf. We reflect upon our own sin. We glory in the resurrection. We look at how Christ was broken, how his blood was spilt and poured out for our sins on the cross. Before partaking in this memorial ceremony, Scripture commands that we examine ourselves. Examine ourselves, look at ourselves, and ask some simple questions. Are there sins in my life that need correcting? Am I living a life that brings honor to Jesus Christ? Do I truly believe the gospel? For these reasons, we provide an opportunity for prayer and reflection.
as we pass the elements around. We practice open communion at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, so if you are a visitor or guest today and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, we welcome you to join us. Rick, would you pray before distributing the bread? Lord God, we are so happy, Lord, about uh, the gift you've given us. We are so humbled at the price you paid for it, Lord. We look upon Christ and his model of, of sacrifice, his model of life, Lord, his model of giving to others. Lord, his desire to want to heal, his desire to want to reach out, Lord to give to those who don't have. Lord, we pray that we would be people like him, that these words wouldn't be just something that we hear, Lord, and yet being dull of hearing, not act. Lord, help us to be a good witness to Port St. Lucie, the surrounding area, to our family members, Lord, by meeting the needs around us. Lord, that is good service, that is good work that is pleasing to you. Lord, also please never let us forget the purpose we're here. That is to tell others about the wonderful salvation available through Jesus Christ. It is in his wonderful and precious name that we pray. Amen.